Hello and welcome to Max Politics. This is Ben Max from Gotham Gazette, a publication of Citizens Union Foundation. Thanks very much for tuning in here for this episode of the show. We're speaking today on Tuesday, January 17th, 2023. Housing, housing, housing. It's hard to go five minutes in New York politics without hearing about housing, and that's for good reason, of course. There's a very clear housing crisis in New York City and New York State with major challenges around supply, affordability, homelessness, public housing, and more. If you've been a regular listener to this show, you've heard several housing-focused conversations over the last years, especially so probably over the last year or so. And we have another good one for you today with a focus on state-level policy and the sweeping housing agenda that Governor Kathy Hochul released earlier this month as part of her 2023 State of the State speech and policy plan. Both Governor Hochul and Mayor Eric Adams have pledged to take on New York's housing crisis. They've been urged on by other elected officials, advocates, other experts, New Yorkers who want more housing options, an affordable place to live, and a growing, more livable city and state. The governor has a new plan for what she says will be about 800,000 new housing units in New York over the next decade. The mayor's plan says 500,000 new units in the city in that time. They've both laid out strategies to get there with more to come, and they'll need political partners and a broader support to get there, including from the state legislature and the New York City Council. The governor's policy agenda will soon be matched by her executive budget, and Mayor Adams has recently released his preliminary budget for the city's next fiscal year, so the policy and budgetary discussions are ongoing and taking on new urgency here early in the new year. As we've reported at Gotham Gazette, the conversation around housing certainly seems to have shifted over the last year or so. And there are a lot more pro-housing voices, a lot more focus on the need for more housing development, a lot more attention on getting to yes on rezonings. There's also a great deal of attention on tenant protections broadly, with debate heating up again in Albany about what are the right policies in that regard. There's lots of controversy over what has happened and should happen with rent-regulated apartments, including many thousands of them that are sitting empty. And there's significant, but probably still not enough attention on NYCHA public housing and what more must be done to address conditions for its half million residents. That premise also applies to New York's homelessness crisis, which has been exacerbated by the recent influx of asylum-seeking migrants to the city, something that Mayor Adams has been especially focused on and is seeking more state and federal help to address. So there's no shortage of pieces to this complicated and all-important puzzle of New York's housing crisis. And joining me today to discuss the policy discussion that has accelerated of late is Anne-Marie Gray, the executive director of Open New York, a pro-housing nonprofit advocacy group. Anne-Marie Gray arrived at Open New York last year after several years working in New York City government on planning, housing, and growth initiatives. Open New York has its own state-level policy agenda and ideas for how to advance pro-housing policies at the city and state levels, and 
their own reactions to the agendas put forth by Governor Hochul and Mayor Adams. My conversation with Anne-Marie Gray in just a moment. First, very briefly, if you've missed any recent episodes of the show here, find them at Max Politics wherever you get podcasts, or we have them all at the Gotham Gazette website, where you can also, of course, find all of our reporting on New York City and state government and politics. That's GothamGazette.com. Here on the show, I've had some great recent guests, including Brooklyn Borough President Antonio Reynoso, New York State Senate Majority Leader Andres Stewart-Cousins, and many others. You can find any or all of those if you're interested after you listen to this one. If you're looking for even more housing-related conversation, I got into a bunch with Borough President Reynoso because he's working on some planning and housing initiatives, and that's land use items are key to the Borough President's role. I also got into a lot of housing and planning with Queens Borough President Donovan Richards when he was on the show recently in another recent episode. And there's several housing-focused discussions going back into 2022 and prior if you want to find those in the podcast feed. All right. Anne-Marie Gray is the executive director of the pro-housing group Open New York. She joined Open New York in late 2022 from New York City Hall, where, according to her bio, she worked under two deputy mayors, managed city planning initiatives, including the Soho, Noho, and Gowanus rezonings and permanent outdoor dining. She helped drive fair housing and land use goals to the forefront of the citywide agenda to address affordability. And Amory Gray has also managed neighborhood planning projects at the New York City Economic Development Corporation, EDC, and previously worked in public housing at the Cambridge Housing Authority. She now leads Open New York, which calls itself a grassroots organization advocating for abundant homes and lower rent and pursuing policies that help achieve housing for all and of various types, including social housing, government subsidized housing, market rate housing, and believes that the current housing laws in New York have caused a profound housing shortage, raising rents to historic highs and leading to the continuous displacement of longstanding communities. All right. So you can find out more about Open New York on their website, of course, but Anne-Marie Gray is with me now. Thank you for being here. How are you? Hi, I'm I'm doing well. Thanks for having me, Ben. Thanks for joining me. So uh, perfect time to talk with you. Open New York has a uh, housing state state policy agenda out ahead of the governor. The governor has put out her big housing agenda. There's lots of details still to come on that. The mayor has put out various housing policies, some of which you helped uh, to craft, of course. Um, so this is a, a great time to talk here early in 2023 as the housing policy discussion is really taking off here. So let's zoom out for a second. How, how do you, having having worked in this and, and you know really been in the trenches on this, including in those rezonings I mentioned, other policy work, um, how do you capture sort of the moment we're in right now in terms of the conversation around housing in New York? How have you noticed it shifting? How does it still need to shift? Big picture here. Where are we in the in the in the big conversation around housing and housing policy and the and you know this need for more housing of all types that open New York and yourself and others talk about? Where are we at right now in the housing conversation in New York? Yeah, it, it's a really interesting and really exciting moment in the housing conversation in New York. I think just looking back over the last many, many decades of New York City's history, the city 
built way more housing per decade, for example, than we've seen over the last decade. Um, a couple stats that I, one stat that I particularly like to use is over the last decade, New York City built less housing per capita than San Francisco, which is famous for not building much housing. Um, and over, over my time in city government, I think we really saw the conversation shift toward first to focus on we need all housing in um, in a lot of different neighborhoods. And um, but frankly, when you actually looked at where some of the growth efforts were targeted and where it was frankly like kind of more politically possible to build housing, it it, it wasn't actually every neighborhood. And I think a lot of my work folk, um, trying to center fair housing and trying to center that every neighborhood really needs to um, to do its part to make sure we're producing you know, housing opportunities and housing abundance for New Yorkers, especially given kind of how far we, we are behind compared to past decades, even in the city's history and other cities across the country and across the world. Um, it, it really shows a lot of inequitable patterns. And we um, we have a lot of exclusionary policies on the books. And so a lot of the last couple of years in this shift to both recognize that Building housing is has to be part of every solution. It is it is necessary but insufficient. We need a lot of tools as our as our policy agenda lays out. But also that it's it's essential that we center places that have um, that have been more exclusionary. That are also often at the in some of the the places that are best connected to transit, best connected to jobs, have really close to parks. Kind of has have good opportunities. And once you, you know, we saw we saw Soho Noho play out, we've seen a number of other individual projects, we've seen Gowanus, we've seen a shift to um, that there's a there's an opening, there's a window to be to be building housing in more of these neighborhoods and recognize that everywhere needs to do their part. We've also seen how challenging the politics are of that. We've seen a lot of the policies on the books that still make it really, really difficult. And we've seen that we can't we can't tackle the depth of the housing affordability crisis project by project. So we're finally starting to see elected officials at every single level start to talk about citywide and especially statewide policies. And that's, I think, exactly where the conversation needs to be. There's a long way to go, but it's really exciting that we're at a moment we're all having a conversation that is also happening in other states around the country of state level and citywide policy that's really centering exclusionary uh, history and exclusionary patterns of growth. Mm -hmm. Yeah, let, let's come back to that in just one minute, um, because I think obviously you're hitting at, at <laughs> of course, you've identified sort of the, the key part of the discussion that's happening is this thinking around um, what the governor has laid out as a as a kind of first possible New York statewide housing strategy, which many people have have remarked is is long overdue. Um, but of course, comes with lots of questions and and some controversy in some places, and will surely be uh, the subject of a lot of political debate. Um, but just on these on this sort of big picture, is eight hundred thousand new units of housing over a decade that the governor set out as the as the goal and the sort of um, you know the big number there, and the, and the mayor originally didn't want to set a number of units on his housing plan, and then a few months went by and he said, actually, you know what, we are going to set a number, and he set five hundred thousand units. Broadly speaking, are those numbers good? Are they right? Is that the right way to think about it? Is it just nice to sort of have these big um, numbers to help focus people and to understand the 
the sort of weight of the issue that we're talking about? What do you make of those sort of big number numerical goals? I think, you know, I think you can go back and forth on the on a very specific number of the benefit of having a number, but I generally think that it's it's in the ballpark of roughly doubling the amount of housing every decade that we have. Um, that is that is in line with roughly what we need. I think that I think the interesting question is less exactly what number should it, but it should it be. I think it is in the right ballpark. I think the question now is just that that it is so hard and there are so many different types of policies and holistic comprehensive strategies that we need to put in place as quickly as possible to even get close to that number. So I think I think it's good to be quantifying the scale of the problem. I think after some point, you know, you're missing the point if you're going back and forth on the specific number or not. We have so much work and, you know, the mayor and I, we're seeing it from other elected officials at, at all levels. They're they're putting they're putting big statements out there. They're putting big goals out there. That's great. How are they then actually going to deliver on them? And frankly, how are they going to really spend the political capital and and the emphasis over years to see it through. I think that yeah. is what, that's what I'm more focused on. Yeah, absolutely. No, I mean, that seems like the big question, right? Is, is, do you have the right set of strategies in place? Can you get them sort of passed through the legislative process for what needs to be passed through the legislative process? Are they funded? Are they staffed? But, but the real, you know, one the biggest outstanding question, as far as I can tell, along with that is what you just get at, which is the political will. Um, you know, a lot of these things take years to, you know, to actualize and you have to keep banging the drum and you have to keep, you know, bringing coalitions together and you have to keep addressing local concerns and you have to keep doing all of these things that really, you know, there's almost no other, um, no other sort of larger political ongoing battle uh, like this. Um, all right. So let's go through the key planks of the open New York platform here. Um, it's broken down uh, in, in what you've released into sort of five big categories. Um, and then we'll talk about how sort of the governor and the mayor are, or aren't, um, meeting those at the moment and what might need to be done to, um, to get even closer to what you want to see happen. Um, the first one is legalizing quote unquote, missing middle housing across the city and state. Say a little bit about what that is all about. Sure. So, Across New York, we have state and we have local laws that prohibit a lot of different types of housing that can that can provide more affordable and more options for everybody. So this can be, you know, backyard cottages, which are often called accessory dwelling units uh, in, in suburban areas or low density areas to um, more kind of SRO um, housing that is really well suited for smaller units or homelessness housing uh, in parts of Manhattan um, to, you know, just medium-sized apartment buildings that frankly are very common in a lot of parts of the city are actually illegal. And so a lot of these, um, a lot of these barriers, um, you know, we, we need actual policies to, to change them, but they are, they can provide a lot of different ways of how we can start to provide, you know, what we're calling missing middle housing, just housing that can provide more options, um, for the middle class and, and off for, for, for everybody. And is that also sort of the in-between in a way between sort of 
owning a, a single family home versus, you know, massive uh, apartment buildings? Is that another way to to think about it? Like there's a lot of, a lot of housing that's in between those two extremes. Exactly. Mm-hmm. I think sometimes you think of new housing and it's the only option is a 50 story apartment building. There's a, there, every city, a good city has a really diverse set of housing options. And we've just actually made it illegal to build a lot of those. Mm-hmm. And we have a lot of different references from other cities um, around the country, uh, around the world. Um, and it, it's not rock and science. There are ways to build um, just a lot of different types of housing that can help meet the need. Mm-hmm. And allowing, as you put in your agenda, three and four family homes and small apartment buildings throughout the city, in some ways that can sound pretty nice, pretty benign, but in places where the zoning doesn't currently allow that, that's where a lot of the big political battles are, correct? I mean, when you're talking about um, even, even sort of a uh, um, a, a quote unquote minor up zoning like that in, in certain places that that's, that's a lot of where the, the political conversation is going to be centered here. Right. We'll find out. I, I honestly think we've barely even tried, so we don't, we don't totally know. And I think that we also have to think of, you know, a lot of really good things also come with, with more neighbors, with being able to raise kids more easily and, um, in this city to be able to stay where you grew up, to be able to live in intergenerational households. All of this requires different types of housing models that other other cities and other countries have modeled already. Like that we have a lot to look for about why this isn't necessarily a negative. But I also genuinely think we, we've, we haven't even really tried in, in New York City or New York State. So we just have a lot to go. Mm-hmm. And in terms of the mechanisms to do some of that, is that... Um, more that's more on the city level is that more on the state level what what i mean it, it's a combination of the two right but what what kind of needs to happen on on the mechanisms to deliver on more of that missing middle housing yeah so our whole agenda as you can uh, as you can see on our on our website openyork.city um we're simultaneously focused on both the city and the state. So a, a lot of what I just said, it can be done on the city level via zoning changes. Frankly, a lot of this actually does fit into the zoning for housing opportunity that the mayor is looking into, and it, it, it is able to fit into that. Also, just in general, with all of this, the state has some very, very powerful tools that can um, make a lot of this happen faster. And that's also why we're very we're very focused on making sure the state changes are part of the conversation because they have, um, we've seen in other states, they can really, they can really speed up or slow down um, how quickly some of these changes can be made. Yeah. And you reference um, the, the mayor's uh, city of yes agenda has a few pieces to it, but one is city of yes housing opportunity. And this is, uh, zoning text amendments for the city that are in development in city government. This is something um, you helped pave the way for while you were still working in city government. Um, so so say a little bit more about what we should be expecting on that. That's obviously something that is 
uh, extremely detailed work needs needs a lot of uh, work inside government before it's ready to um, to be published and to be put out into the public and then to be the subject of lots of of public review and the land use review process and ultimately if it's successful city council passage um, that is um, that is expected to be a, a, a revamp of of zoning across the city correct. Yeah, I think that I worked on it in its early stages. I think there's there's a huge amount of work to go, and I think it has the potential to be a really comprehensive look about tackling exclusionary zoning and, and just some zoning on the books that is getting in the way of housing opportunities. I think there's a lot to go. The mayor will have to, and the and the city council will have to, you know, really prioritize it and really focus on it. So um, we are, as was in our, as is in our agenda, we'll be advocating for allowing three and four family homes and small apartment buildings everywhere in the city. Um, eliminating existing bans on small studios or what are known as single room occupancy residences, and also um, eliminating parking minimums. So I think these it uh, take tackling this rather than project by project, but on a on a comprehensive citywide level is a really exciting opportunity. Um, we will be pushing for it as hard as we can and asking for the most, you know, demanding the most aggressive version of it possible. But it, it you know, there's a lot to go and we, we really have to make sure our elected officials are, are really prioritizing it and are um, making the best use of that opportunity. Mm-hmm. Last I saw uh, that was expected maybe end of this year, uh, some, somewhere around that timeline. I don't know if you've seen something different or, or, or expect something different, but um, this is something that that's going to take a little while. Yeah. Yeah. I believe um, I believe one of the first steps uh, of the land use review process will be in the summer and then it should enter public review. I, I believe they did say by the end of the year, but we can check that. So you said one of the most charged uh, words in in land use uh, policy, and that's parking. Um, so say a little bit more about uh, the the value and the goal of removing parking minimums. I we're New York City. We have one of the most incredible transit systems in the country. Um, you know, requiring parking and the additional cost that gets passed down in terms of rent, in terms of housing prices is significant. Um, There's been a lot of research on this and um, not requiring it doesn't mean that if it's needed, it doesn't get built. It's just, it feels very outdated that we are still requiring it in new developments, um, especially in a place like New York City. And so how does that work in, in practice? That's that's remove all requirements or do it in a more nuanced way than that? If there's certain, um, you know, certain metrics that can be used for how close uh, uh, development is to a subway line or how, how do you sort of target that? Or, or is what you're saying, what you think is the best way forward is to remove all um, minimum requirements, and then there's still the possibility to do it where developers decide that it makes sense. Uh, we at Open New York think you you need to eliminate them when they are attached to new health, housing developments entirely. There are different degrees in that, but um, so many other places in the country have already done this. Um, 
frankly, Anchorage, Alaska is further ahead than New York City on some of this. So we just think it can be built if it's needed. No one's stopping you from building it. But why are we requiring it in 2023? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And right here on the on the city's uh, the city government website under some of the some of the details of what to expect in the city of yes housing opportunity uh, agenda is that the city will prioritize people over parking uh, to make streets safer and reduce requirements and enable more housing and services and amenities that help neighborhoods thrive. So that would be a very interesting part of the discussion, certainly. All right, so let's um, let's come to, to the, the second piece here, which I think, um, well, we, we've already gotten at that related to parking mandates, but, but around making the process to build homes faster, cheaper, and easier is, is a second plank under your agenda at Open New York. Um, this is something clearly that, um, again, like all of these have city and state elements. The governor speaking about a big one of these is transit oriented development, but say a little bit about um, about how to make the processes involved in building homes faster, cheaper and easier. Um, sure. So other, other than ending parking, uh, parking requirements, as we touched on. Yeah, that is that is definitely one of them. I think a couple other things that we're we're interested in and looking at is there are a lot of requirements that are tied to um, environmental review processes. Look, some of these they they have been on the books for very legitimate reasons, giving planning history and they're important. Others, they are they are outdated. They are not actually um, measuring things that we that are really really relevant for us to be measuring, um, they uh, cost lots of money that get passed down in the form of rents and, and housing costs, and frankly, they are often what is used um, for that are they are often used and weaponized in lawsuits. We're seeing, I mean, uh, the Haven Green project um, in, in Manhattan. Frankly, we just saw a ruling on 250 Water Street. Um, but we, there are a lot of examples of environmental review being used, especially in some of the most exclusionary neighborhoods to stop housing. Um, so that is a whole, the mayor has talked about some really interesting changes there. Um, there is a bill, uh, Senator May, Senator Rachel May has a really interesting bill on the state level in that. It takes both the city and the state, they each have a role to play and they each have different powers in this. Um, we are excited to see that the governor um, wants to um, exempt certain projects from environmental review when, you know, when they're really close to transit um, across the region and some places that we all generally agree really are the, exactly the right places for housing. So we're excited to see proposals like this. Again, there's a, a lot to go to make to actually pass a lot of these things, but um, but it's the right conversation to be having. Any anything sort of specific you can get at in terms of the the overbearingness of environmental review? I mean, you know, people obviously hear the term environmental review. The first thing that goes is, you know, I, I think along with that is that, you know, there's there's some sort of environmental hazard related to, uh, you know, developing a certain site. Um, but but it, it it's a lot more complicated than that. And we, we don't need to get into all the the details here. But what are the what are the parts of these requirements that are so cumbersome that are unnecessary or what are the piece, are there pieces that allow for these lawsuits that are 
you know, can you know, might have some merit in the court of law, but but point to the fact that there might need to be some modernization or some reform of of what's on the books to not allow it to be so easy to sue and stop a, a project. Yeah, and, and there's been some really interesting recent um, kind of papers and research on this. A couple examples that come to mind, um, and I there are. I will note there are strategic questions of whether it makes sense to, you know, exempt environmental review entirely for small projects, which is one of the things the mayor has talked about versus trying to trying to tweak it. Right. And and, um, and so those are questions we're having a lot of conversations with. But a couple examples that come to mind are, um, you know, uh, environmental review can measure noise in a neighborhood in the center of Manhattan where uh, it's very subjective, what is noisy or not. And frankly, even if it's eventually ruled that it's it's fine and it meets standards, it opens up the ability to delay a project and, 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 and people kind of make whole careers out of suing on this for years and years and years. So it's really effective at often delaying projects for, for, for reasons like that. Another big example um, is there's very elaborate um, traffic um traffic analysis mm-hmm. and again in some places given history of planning it's really important that you do that in other places you're spending sometimes millions of dollars on um you know estimating signal timing 10 years down the road on a project right like there has to be a better way for us to to do that especially on a project that's relatively small so th- those are a couple examples um there's there's been some interesting writing with the um, citizens budget commission and the and the mayor's report that are just trying to trying to isolate out the places that it really drives up costs. It really um, is be- is most weaponized in lawsuits, and it's not giving us meaningful information that actually aligns with our policy goals. Yes, our uh, our friends over at CBC Citizens Budget Commission have put out a, a pretty exhaustive analysis of of some of these processes and requirements uh, with some recommendations. So, if anyone's looking for a good deep dive into all that, as you said, that's that's one place to look. Um, in the governor's proposals around these questions, um, you know, her policy book does discuss the idea that um, first it does promise that the state will will still be very careful around, uh, you know, what what is is said to be uh, crucial, you know, safeguards and preventing environmental harm and ensuring public health, of course devil always in the details as to how that gets done, but there's there's at least uh, uh, writing to that effect here. This is not about un, undoing a, any and all protections, but also noting, for example, um, the, the targeting of transit-oriented development as as positive for the environment, that, that building densely near public transit, mass transit is actually, um, you know, a positive for uh, for environmental considerations. Um, so uh, the, the, the third one here in your platform is one of the most interesting ones going back to this discussion around neighborhood rezonings and um, all neighborhoods being part of, of the growth vision. As I said in my intro, this is something that uh, I discussed quite a bit with borough president Antonio Reynoso of Brooklyn, uh, and he's working on on this very topic, uh, which will be very interesting to see what his office produces here. But this is this is the idea of ensuring that every neighborhood 
neighborhood and as far as the governor's agenda discussed it, every municipality across the state um, sort of chips in with creating new housing opportunities. Um, so say say a little bit about how to do that. What, what are the best strategies to ensure that every neighborhood in the city is creating new housing opportunities and and every municipality and locality in the state is is creating new housing opportunities to to be part of of growth yeah this is a really crucial one um and yeah i think we've seen especially recently places um both neighborhoods in the city but also municipalities around the state that have really good access to jobs, to healthcare, to parks, to transit, um, and just some of the best resourced areas, um, they're left untouched and they are not, um, they're not actually being held responsible for delivering housing opportunities for everybody and creating a, an inclusive city. So this, um, there are a couple different things to think about on this one. First, I think in New York City, you're starting to hear more of a conversation with elected officials about the importance of having uh, more local housing production targets. I think it's really interesting that the borough presidents are, are talking about this. It's an interesting role for borough presidents to play. And also, ultimately, um, you know, community boards and council districts really need to be grappling with this really directly. Um, and we have to make sure that that's not just the ones that have, you know, have actually produced housing in recent decades, but some of the ones that really haven't. And we have a lot of data on that right now. What What's important here is that all of that planning is really, really important and crucial and, and nuanced. But if there is not accountability that you really make sure it happens, and if places you know, kind of pretend to make a plan, but then, you know, it doesn't actually happen, that there, there's a way to, there's a way to enforce that, no, it has to happen. We've seen, frankly, both Massachusetts and California have had state level policies on the books for decades that have had some that have, that have tried to grapple with that question. New York has had nothing. And New York, you know, you look at some of the data of parts of Westchester, parts of Long Island, we have some of the most exclusionary suburbs in the country that are really producing almost no housing. And again, we the public funds a amazing regional transit network. We have the strongest regional economy in the country, and we don't have any mechanism that actually plans for housing opportunity at a regional level. So what's really interesting, it, it's very exciting to see the governor be the first governor that's prioritizing zoning reform at a statewide and I think especially regional level for decades. So this is the conversation we need to be having. What's what's really important, I mean, the devil is really in the details and enforcement is what really matters. So we're going to be watching this really, really closely to making sure that, for example, a municipality has a certain amount of time to create their own plan for how they're going to um, introduce more housing. If they don't, the state steps in, right? And we've seen that happen, especially in California last fall, where the state, you know, you, you at some point, you lose your right to control your own zoning if you're not actually providing housing opportunities. And this, this is exactly the type of, the type of, 
of um, legislation, the types of processes, the types of data, the types of enforcement mechanisms that we have to get right. And it um, and fortunately, we have a couple other states to look at now mm-hmm. um, in the best ways to do that. So these are some of the details that we're going to be, you know, we've talked to the governor's office. We're going to be really, really focused on it's it is hard and it will take some time and it will take some time to make sure we get right. Um but it has the power to both make sure that the state is using all of the powers it has to 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 really do what it's saying it 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 wants to do to make sure the state's providing counties and change the local politics in in very interesting ways. Mm-hmm. So is the gist here, as outlined by the governor and maybe with additions from what you'd like to see, is the gist here that the state puts into law um housing targets, housing growth targets. The governor has outlined her initial um, proposal for her New York housing compact, as she calls it, requiring all cities, towns, villages to achieve new home creation targets on three-year cycles. Um, Downstate uh, areas that are served by the MTA have to do a 3% new homes increase over three years, other places upstate, it's 1% over three year increase. Um, and then these are set and there's some support in, you know, helping to meet this, but localities, as you get at it, as the governor's plan says, develop their own plans to meet these new home construction targets. Um, and, and that there's a lot of sort of local planning that needs to happen to meet those targets. And then those local plans need to be sort of passed locally and executed. And if that's what's happening, the state doesn't really step in further. I mean, is that sort of the, <laughs> the gist of what happens or the state is, is going to offer tax incentives, you know, how, how, how should it work in sort of in practice as we, as we move ahead on this, if the governor is, you know, is successful in, in achieving that, is it, um, is it that there's, there's state tax incentives that need to come be passed along with these requirements? Do they come secondary? How do, how does some of that sort of, um, you know, I guess you'd say sort of that some of the carrot comes along with some of the stick. <laughs> exactly. There, there are different carrots and sticks. I think another tool, you know, the governor has the power to withhold funding of different kinds if you're not meeting this goal. Um, the governor also, the way that some of this legislation is written about whether or not, um, whether or not uh, it allows for like a, um, for lawsuits, um, for a local right of action. Some of these, these are the types of details. And um, uh, we've been in touch with the folks in California, the folks in other states about what worked or hasn't worked about the very specific ways that they've been trying to tweak um, and and write their own legislation. It's even early over there in California. So uh, I have a policy director who's a, who has a law background and has been really, really diving into the details. And again, the legislation isn't even, even out yet where we've had preliminary conversations with the, the governor's office and it is, um, you know, it's promising that the direction that they're going, but the devil, the, the, the details really, really matter about how this is accountable, how this is enforceable, um, ultimately in terms of how it's going to actually play out to make sure it results in housing. Yeah. In a wide range of housing that's actually that all can also be affordable to a lot of people. Yeah. I mean, I will say, you know, in the governor's proposal, uh, they're trying to cover it uh, from from the various angles, including 
talking about um, a new version of what was called the 421A, you know, tax abatement for uh, housing development that included some affordable housing in New York City that lapsed. Um, and they're talking about developing a new version of that. The governor didn't put out specifics on that, but said those are to come as you get at. There is not the full, um, you know, legislation that has all the details on, on any of this yet, but that's to come. In the governor's proposal, there was um, uh, infrastructure and planning funds that the that this program would also come if it was passed, at least as the governor's proposing it, with a $200 million infrastructure fund, a $20 million planning fund, that these are things that localities can apply to for help with the planning, for help with infrastructure that is needed with new housing. So uh, not only to help it happen, but also to head off some of the concerns that sometimes occur around new housing development related to, um, you know, the, the relevant infrastructure nearby. So say a little bit more about the politics here, because obviously as we get into all of this, but but this one perhaps most of all about requiring localities to, to build more housing, um, how, how does the politics on this play out? What's necessary to achieve this? We saw Last year, the governor had some stuff in her agenda around accessory dwelling units, around transit-oriented development. She got a lot of pushback on Long Island and some from the northern suburbs and dropped that stuff pretty quickly. We don't need to get into all the politics of it being an election year. That that was clear. <laughs> but um, but she seems you know much more committed now and, and has a much more full agenda. But obviously, there's going to be some degree – of significant pushback to this idea of the state requiring all localities to to build more housing. What's needed from your vantage point, leading a pro-housing organization that um, has an agenda that that meets a lot in many points with the governor's agenda here and, and obviously helped influence it as well. What's needed politically to sort of make this happen? And how are you and, and your allies working to sort of craft that political agenda and will? Yeah, so, I mean, just first on the governor, you know, Governor Hochul has to make choices on what she spends political capital on. We really hope it's housing. We were excited it was at the top of, of, of her briefing book. But of course, that, you know, there's a lot happening that remains to be seen. We'll be closely watching and really doing everything we can to ensure it remains a top priority and that she's putting the political capital behind it that she's going to need to to pass some of this. And that being said, you know, the Every level of government has a huge role to play in this. We have yet to see exactly what comes out of the Senate, out of the Assembly. Um, and there, it's really, you know, it, this all has to happen in, in, in partnership. I think also this, the city is a, is a really big player in this as well. And the success of um, the success of something at New York state level, I think different from other states who don't have a city that is as huge and as, as powerful as New York city is the mayor and the city council are also going to have to, you know, make sure that, that their, you know, their support behind this type of system where everyone kind of bands together and says, we desperately need to create more of all different types of housing and that recognizes that at, at certain times, the state needs to use its full force and we need those policies on the books. You know, uh, uh, 
ideally we get to a place where that's, you know, that can all pass, but everyone has a huge role to play and everyone needs to prioritize this and really put the political capital behind it. Um, it's, it's, it's so huge. It's so important. Um, and it's going to be hard. And so we are, we're doing everything we can, frankly, to put pressure on every single elected official in the seat that they're in. We're putting a lot behind how do we, how do we create coalitions of different advocates because housing touches everybody and it touches, um, it is such a, such a top issue for basically every New Yorker that isn't really wealthy. How do create, we create coalitions that haven't existed yet to date? How do we create a narrative about how this is, you know, this, this is in line with, with the, the broader progressive cause. And um, how do we create this as a kind of a holistic approach to, to addressing housing and this being a really crucial part of it. So we're kind of, we're throwing everything we have out this, but it's, um, you know, it requires a slightly different politics than we have now. Um, it's exciting to see, you know, some of the narrative shift and it seemingly some of the consensus shift, but to date that has still just been in words, not in things that have actually passed. Mm-hmm. Um, in your experience, and I know you've been more of a policy person than a political person, and obviously now <laughs> running Open New York, you're, you're getting more and more into the politics and, and the advocacy. And as you say, you know, p- coalitions and, and, and putting pressure on elected officials and, and all of that. But from your experience, I mean, you've worked on a couple of these controversial rezonings in the city, Soho, Gowanus, uh, other planning initiatives. Um, are there are there arguments that work best that you have a sense of? Are there arguments, are there, are there ways to go into parts of Long Island and try to change hearts and minds on this stuff? You know, I mean, one of the things that I'm always struck by is that very often in this housing discussion, we hear even people who are in favor of housing talk about housing as a burden. And it always strikes me as a very strange thing to hear when people are sort of trying to convince others to support more housing, but they're still using sort of talk of new housing as something burdensome. And I, I understand, obviously, you, you you get into concerns about infrastructure, about sewer systems or school seats or all these other things. But housing is a burden. You know, there's local construction that happens and things like that. But that always strikes me as as one way for pro-housing people to, to quickly shoot them their own arguments uh, in the foot, so to speak. Um, but I wonder if you have, from your experience, any insights into arguments that that kind of work uh, to help help change hearts and minds or to help, you know, bring people around on the on some of these really tough uh, questions and debates. Yeah, it, it's a great question. Um, and come back to me in a little bit to see how well how well it's worked. But I think that um, you know, Open New York and 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 me and kind of the story of what brought me into this and and honestly, the majority of Open New York is just a grassroots membership that's really only a couple years old. It's largely a lot of young people, and you know, we've the story of New York as a welcoming place for our parents, for great grandparents, for for um you know, depending on who you are, it's no longer a welcoming place for so many people. And, you know, our New York's opportunities should be open to everybody. And that doesn't happen unless we start to provide more housing opportunities. So I, I think that especially as we, you know, the the story of, of New York and its identity, it, it does not feel like the policies we're passing are, are, are lining up to that. So I think that is one, that's one lane. Um, I think also, that you know housing housing is 
housing policy is transportation policy to me. Housing is a health issue. It is a climate issue. It is an issue of racial and economic justice. I mean, frankly, I think it's an issue of public safety. So I think that how do we how do we tap into why this is such a, an all pressing issue for so many different um, different advocates um, and and different kind of everyday New Yorkers is another. Uh, another lens we're really looking at. And and frankly, also just, you know, people are stuck. People are stuck in housing that is in bad shape. They're stuck wanting to move to New York and not being able to afford it. They're stuck with roommates. They're stuck in relationships that they don't want to be in, right? And just more housing gives people more options. So, you know, I think we are, it does, it depends on the audience, depends on the situation. Um, but there are so many reasons why this really has struck a chord with everybody. And it's, how do you tap into that? We don't get into this now. We wouldn't. We don't need to get into this now. We only have a few more minutes here. But um, you know, it, obviously, Long Island is one of the places where this conversation will be the most fraught and the most interesting. And um, you know, there's been some speculation that given the governor didn't do very well on Long Island and Republicans won a bunch of state senate and house seats there, that you know, the idea might be to just you know sort of pass this stuff over the objections of folks on Long Island if there if there are allowed ones and and you know just keep advancing what people think is in the best interest of the state overall. But it also strikes me that, you know, there, there are arguments, there are clearly, there's constituencies to be to be had on Long Island. There's there's arguments to be made on Long Island. Obviously, Long Island is not some monolith. Um, and, and there's 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 lots of uh, people who, who may be sympathetic to some of these policies on Long Island, people struggling for affordable housing, uh, people in the construction industry, certainly, um, you know, people who people who see their their kids unable to find a affordable place to live on Long Island who might want to live there, even if they're working in New York City and so forth. So I think that'll be interesting and, and it'll be especially interesting to see how much of a sort of positive case is made in places like Long Island for some of these policies. Um, let me ask you, since we just oh, go ahead, if you want to jump in. on that. Oh, just one thing, maybe this is where you ask me is I, I do think, you know, the last two pillars of our um of our policy yes, agenda. Was about we to go got, there. Go ahead, yeah, please. yeah. I think it relates to the question you just said that I think we're also really in, focused on how do we just build a, a big tent coalition that kind of presents a vision for what we can do here that both addresses some of these, um, a lot of the challenges we've talked about today. Those will all take a long time. And there are, you know, people are hurting now and there are challenges now that how do we create a holistic approach that addresses all of that? So I think given the scale and severity of our housing crisis, kind of we take an aggressive all of the above approach that includes tenant protections that includes immediate ways that we try to fight housing discrimination which is a really big issue and i think that um and so that is something that we do not think is in conflict at all and we think that we need to be talking about all of these things and doing all of these things um and then the last pillar of how do we really focus on strength let me just let me just stop yeah. you real quick because yeah, yeah. in your in your fourth of the five pillars you know, you, you turn a lot of heads, at least people who are, you know, insidery people uh, <laughs> at, at the very least by by supporting um, the what's called good cause eviction legislation at the state level, which, as you get at, is part of stronger tenant protections. Um, we're not going to, you know, get into all the details and the and the for and against of of this policy, but um, it at least speaks to what you said about a, a, a sort of bigger housing vision and trying to build a larger coalition that's saying, um, yes, we want to build a lot more housing, but we also want to 
provide stronger tenant protections for people who are right now living in apartments and worried about, you know, big rent increases or, um, you know, being evicted for uh, reasons that are, you know, they don't believe are are legitimate and so forth. So that, that, that seemed like a very big moment in sort of the housing movement coalition building uh, space. And I, and I, it seems to me, as you just indicated that that was, that sort of very intentional big tent policy decision. Yeah. I think I mean, our whole policy agenda, I, I very deeply believe in. I think we can have and we need all of these things. Um, and, you know, having more housing options also includes you have the option to stay. Um, and there are a lot of people really hurting right now um, and really fearing that they won't be able to afford their next lease. So I think that we have to do, you know, so not having not building enough housing is is also at the center of this we just we can do both of these things um and they are not in conflict and so let's get into this last plank um in our last mm-hmm. couple of minutes here i'm speaking with Anne marie gray executive director of open new york um because you because you recently come out of city government you've seen you've seen the inside and you've been on the inside this issue of um uh, the that relates to your your plank is also in part about um, strengthening government agencies. Um, and, and there's a variety of of reasons to do that and and ways to do that. Um, and and part of what you're looking to do is increase government capacity to help create and preserve uh, social housing. Uh, you could say a little bit about that. but but also there's a lot of controversy and discussion right now over, all of these discussions and all of these pieces are are nice, but if if government doesn't have the capacity to move through uh, affordable housing deals at the city's housing department, uh, if there's you know years long backlog uh, to to get these deals done and these financing deals done and things like that, a lot of this is just not going to be achievable. So say a little bit about government capacity in, in any of these directions as, as a key um, to getting a lot of this done. Yeah. I mean, my whole career to date was in the public sector. I just deeply, deeply believe that the government can do good things for people. Um, and that's what drew me there. And so I think in the short term, kind of our city is is bleeding people and um, our agencies are so understaffed. And we have a lot of, frankly, a lot of these very bureaucratic processes that are not actually adding value for New Yorkers are also kind of making those jobs not very fun to do, not very attractive, right? So these are all related. Um, and I um, and I really believe that the near-term issues of lack of, of, of really strong government capacity to move quickly and effectively at the goals we have is, is crucial. I think longer term, what our agenda is getting at, um, you know, you hear a lot about social housing. It can kind of mean different things to different people. But ultimately, there are so many models around the world of the government of the of a strong effective public sector just providing a wider range of 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 models of housing stability for people and i've i kind of this is what i i spent you know early days when i was in when i was a student living in a bunch of different countries and just studying different models of housing and there are so many ways where i think a, a, a the public sector can get more involved to build housing directly, um, you know, different models of public housing where I started my career. Um, 
you know, we just have so many, we've only scratched the surface of what the public sector can do just to provide a wider range and more diverse options. So we're very interested in, um, you know, that is a longer term vision, but we're really interested in being part of that conversation of how we do this better for New Yorkers long term. Um, final question. Uh, I, I'd like to get into what you just mentioned more, but but final question, which which does get at government capacity as well, and is something I've been having some interesting conversations with with people around, um, including the borough presidents that I mentioned, Antonio Reynoso of, of Brooklyn and Donovan Richards of Queens, but also just offline conversations with people, um, and this question of sort of neighborhood plans in the city and neighborhood rezonings and you having worked on the Soho and the Gowanus ones, I wanted to get your perspective on this in our in our final minute um, here, which is, should the Adams administration be pursuing a suite, a list of neighborhood rezonings? Is that a smart way to do it? Or should almost all the eggs or all the eggs be put in the, in the baskets of, of the more citywide zoning text amendments and you deal with the private rezoning applications, but you don't do the neighborhood community plans. What's your perspective on that? It's a great question. And ultimately I do think that certain you, you need, you need strong neighborhood planning. And I think you need, there are places where the zoning needs to be changed on a, on a, on a, on a more nuanced level. Um, and, and you need to go through the process of thinking through that. I think that the mistake that was made, you know, over the last, you look at the last, say, decade of, of land use in, in New York City, it was only that. We were not, we, we weren't addressing more citywide policies that are getting at exclusionary zoning. We're not at all touching the statewide conversation that, again, the state has the power with kind of snap of their hands to do things way faster than anything we're doing on the city. So I think that it's, it is an all of the above approach. There are neighborhoods where you're you absolutely need to think at that level. I just think we, we can't, we can't think we can't, um, we can't keep pretending that that's the only tool in the toolbox. Um, and as kind of like the lowest common denominator of how we start, we need to be thinking more citywide and more statewide as well. And then also doing, also doing neighborhood plans. Those are also important. Okay. All of the above. I thought you might, I thought you might say that. Um, <laughs> all right. Amory Gray, thank you for the time. Amory Gray is the executive director of Open New York, the pro-housing advocacy group with its um, 2023 agenda out that deals with both state level and city level policies. Um, thank you for the time. Appreciate the thoughts. And I think we'll have plenty to discuss down the line here as this housing conversation continues, but thank, thanks very much for the time here today. Yeah, of course. Thank you so much for having me.